Welcome to the Exit Strategy with myself, Natalie Holloway. This podcast has been designed to explore the transition process from military to civilian. We speak to members who have made the transition, organizations who support the transition, as well as delve deeper into topics to gain further understanding. This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Bungarong people, and I wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. I would also like to pay my respects to their elders past and present and Aboriginal elders or other communities who may be listening today. Hello everyone, I hope you're all having a wonderful day. Now I wanted to pop on just to do a little bit of an introduction to this episode. Um, I have invited uh, Christian and Corbin from AVAC Services on to have a chat with me about their transition stories, which was amazing and I absolutely enjoyed it and I think that you are all going to enjoy this episode as well. Now I've split it up into two uh, sections. So we've got part one which is their transition story Um, and then we've got part two which is about AVAC services and how they support through uh, veterans with DBA advocacy. Now I have done this because in the first episode in part two we do talk about mental health struggles and we also talk about suicidal ideation um, and suicide. So it's up to you as to whether this is an episode that will be beneficial to yourself um, and if it's something that you are ready to listen to. I will link the Beyond Blue uh, Lifeline and Open Arms numbers into the episode thread so that if you do need some extra support, uh, you know, if you're listening to it and you have to stop and you have to call them, you can do that. Or if you get to the end of the episode and you notice that you're not feeling too good, you can call those numbers too to get some support. Um, or if this episode is not suitable for you at this very point in time, please do listen to part two because part two will be really insightful into what DBA advocacy is and how you can be best supported through that. So I hope you all enjoy the episode and I will chat to you all soon. Alrighty, so I have Christian and Corbin from AVAC Services with us today and we're going to have a chat about their transition stories um, and then also what they the organization that they run and how they can help people transitioning out of defense um so when i first do these episodes guys i normally ask people when they enlisted so when did you both enlist and obviously we'll have to go one and then the other not both of you talking at the same time so you would like to start first (laughs) I don't mind. Um, I'll go for it. Yeah. So look, I I, um, I enlisted in two thousand and yeah, uh, end of two thousand and thirteen. Yeah, also beginning of fourteen there. And um, yeah, why? Um, so I, I enlisted uh, primarily because most of my family had served in some capacity. So I've had my, mm-hmm. my grandfather served in Korea, uh, my great grandfather served in World War Two, and then so on. You know, I, most of my uncles have served. Um, my dad served. 
Um, so it was just this, um, it wasn't an expectation, but it was something I wanted to commit to and fulfill yeah. that family tradition of service. So there was always that scratch that yeah. I, um, or that itch I wanted to scratch. So that's, that's why, and, and yeah, it's why I enlisted. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, I find that's a really common reason for people to enlist is that family members have also previously been in the services, which is really cool. Is that similar for you too, Corbin? Or It's very close. So I've, I enlisted in uh, July 2015 and I was the same. It's, I had my, my grandfather was a POW in World War II um, and then when he migrated to Australia, he then joined the army and then into the navy so it was he was just someone I always looked up to so it just became like almost like a natural progression for me I didn't really consider any other career choice that really ticked the boxes for me it's um everything I tried prior to actually committing was just not successful it just didn't really it just kept raising its head as the preferred option so it's yeah, it just seemed like it's something I wanted to do since I was a kid and especially um, growing up around my grandfather and hearing stories from him and, uh, and what about what he went through and why he joined. And it made it just really wanted me to commit to the service and to do my bit. Yeah, definitely. And did you both join, um, I, I think if I remember correctly, when we were talking previously, Christian, um, Corbin joined the officer route and then you joined the digger route? That's, yeah, so I joined. Um, so I actually went to enlist, um, I think it was back in 2010. Um, so the first year after leaving school, I actually applied for the West Australian Police um, and they told me I needed to get some more life experience. Um, so I, I always wanted to kind of commit to a, um, a career in, you know, in uniform. Look, yeah, so I um, actually went to enlist in 2010 uh, into the Navy as an aviation technician. Um, but unfortunately, because I was on certain medication at the time, I, um, I had to come off that. So then I ended up becoming a, um, well, doing my electrical apprenticeship. Yeah, that, I went down the, um, the digger route and enlisted straight into the army as um, an infantry. Yeah. And then Corbett? Yeah, so I, um, I actually went in originally. My whole plan was to, was to join a combat corps the whole way through um, school. And then it's not till I went to my assessment day when they start doing the in-depth colour vision testing when I found out that um, my, I was colourblind and then quite severely enough that I, my list of jobs went down from about any option in the army to about 14 jobs at the time. So I originally applied to be a medical technician and then um, passed the test, uh, um, the aptitude test to score high enough to get entry to RMC and then um, got swayed into that path um, with the option of still going into medical corps. Um, yes, I went through um, the college um, due to injury. What normally takes 18 months took me 24. Um, but, yeah, still one of the best things I've ever done was getting through that place and graduating and then going out to a unit. But, yeah, very different pathways yeah definitely and how did um I guess that will be a question that I'll ask a bit later is how you guys came to meet um but with with your different pathways what were like what are some highlights for you both during your time in defense maybe we'll start with Christian first 
Yeah, I think the, the biggest highlights uh, of my time in defence were probably the people I met and the, the experiences that we kind of endured together. So yeah, I, I look back and um, all of the things that at the time seemed, uh, you know, quite challenging and, you know, you, you probably didn't um, make the most of at the time, those opportunities. I kind of look back at and, and, and I'm very glad we, you know, kind of experienced those things, you know, from things like sleep deprivation um, and, you know, just being out field and that camaraderie that's kind of bred through training. Um, that's one thing I, I absolutely loved. And, and, and to be honest, the, the, the thing that I really enjoyed the most was honestly, and it sounds maybe a little bit cliche, but, you know, waking up in the morning, uh, putting that uniform on and putting the Australian patch on your shoulder, there's just something that, um, you know, there's something about that that I don't think you can get in most of the workplaces. Um, I think maybe, you know, emergency services and first responders, those type of workplaces you will, um, a little bit similar. But, you know, I think there's that pride of putting on that Australian, um, you know, that flag. Yeah, so that's, I think that's one of the things I really enjoyed the most about my time in defence and just being able to, you know, because, you know, defence, the things you do are, are difficult and they're tough and they really did test you. But the, the reality is, you know, if you look to the side, everyone else is going through the same. And I think that um, that, that just that breeds this very close-knit kind of community in the in defence. Um, and, and that's one of the things I, I do miss uh, as well because, you know, it is very, very hard to find other workplaces that are so cohesive, yeah, and yet understanding as well. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I can um, I understand what you're saying because from being a military spouse, watching the relationships that my husband has within defense is very different to the relationships that I have formed from a civvy route. Yes, 100%. And it it's so different. And then like my civvy um, friendships are very different to the defense relationships that we form where it's more like family for the defense and then the civvy is not quite as family yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I feel like I could almost trust most of the people I served with, um, you know, as a brother or a sister. Um, you know, I, I feel like I could, you could trust them with everything you have um, and you know that they would do the right thing. Whereas I, I didn't feel the same kind of um, relationships were formed in, in city land. Uh, you know, I previously worked as a Sparky and um, it just, yes, it was cohesive, but it wasn't as cohesive. You didn't have that brotherly bond. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's like what you were talking about when you're in the trenches together and you're going through hard times, that's where really strong relationships are formed. And even for me with um, the couple of really close friends that I do have, we went through some really, really tricky times in civilian land and that's how our bond has formed. So when you're in with a whole group of people, you really do get that really big cohesive um, like bunch of people around you that really understand what you're going through. What about yourself, Corbin? What are some of the highlights for your time while you were serving? Yeah, it kind of very similar to Christian's answer. My um the people and the uniform, that that pride of putting the uniform on, which like a lot of people in civilian world will complain about having to wear a uniform um, because it's not the done thing. But when you're putting on a uniform that represents your country and that you are saying, I am prepared to do whatever is necessary to defend the nation's interests by putting that uniform every day, knowing that you can be called to do your job, it's just a different there's a real sense of pride and um, attachment to service through that. And then 
I think it's like besides the relationships and the people, I won't go into too much depth without because Christian's already covered it. But the I really enjoyed the methodicalness and the structure of defense and especially the army. It's very regimented in how it does things, but that's got a purpose. And that perp- that that's one thing I found from transition is that's very applicable to a non-service life. And it's that routine has really probably been the saving grace through transition as well. Uh, yeah, met some great people, service some great people, um, internationals as well as um, Australians. Just, um, yeah, the relationships and the quality of the individuals and the teams there, uh, second to none. You just can't. It's very, I am yet to find that um, outside of service, that all everyone focused towards the same goal with the same tenacity. Yeah, definitely. And I guess for both of you guys with um, the organisation that you have formed, I'm guessing that gives you that sense of purpose and that sense of direction that you had within defense, but now outside, because you both have that similar mindset, maybe. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I 100% agree. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I think it's definitely like what you said, Corbin, that structure and that routine within defense is something that's really hard to find outside unless you're willing to create that for yourself, (laughs) I find. Yeah, like... It comes from the small things as well. Like I still wake up at five o'clock every day because I've done it ever since I joined. So it's like, it's just the still wake up. I still have the same morning routine. It's still go to bed roughly the same time. It's those small things, but like the 1% kind of add up once you get out and just Mm -hmm. make, um, just helps keep that uh, attachment to your service without being too attached, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, that that does make sense. Um, it's those familiar familiarities in life that are there that make you feel like you are still um, doing that thing that you previously did. I think in terms of yeah, that comfort by doing that. Um, so for you both, uh, what were the reasons um, for you leaving the military? Um, yeah, so I um, uh, unfortunately sustained an injury uh, to my ligament, and so I initially sustained that during uh, training, um, and then obviously the fear of obviously getting back squatted and removed from a course, um, you just persevered and pushed through. Mm-hmm. In turn, though, you do uh, I un- unfortunately did a little bit more damage to my nerve, uh, so correction to my um, ligaments, yeah. uh, and then subsequent surgeries. Then I had some nerve damage. So unfortunately, I was, you know, medically separated from defence, mm-hmm. and 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 it's pretty hard hitting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Is, did you want me to go into any more detail about any of yeah, that? Yeah, if you want to, like when you say it was hard hitting, is that the um like the lead up to knowing that that was where your injury was going to take you to being medically discharged, or was it afterwards? Or yeah, so um. I guess I, I tried to maintain a certain level of optimism when I first found out about my injury. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kept training. Um, so after my first, so I had first surgery, which is a reconstruction of my um, my ankle. Yeah. Following that surgery, um, you know, Afghan was on the horizon. So I was um, obviously trying to get myself ready for that. I, I think I probably pushed myself a little bit too hard, too fast, um, obviously too eager. And uh, I pushed that rehab 
button um, pretty hard. And unfortunately, what happened was I built up a little bit of excess scar tissue. So then the surgeon had to go back in and clean that out because that was kind of impeding the recovery. So for, following that surgery, though, he un, unfortunately, he nicked the nerve and then I lost uh, sensation to my foot alongside a bit of you know range of motion and things like that. It wasn't until that eventuated that I kind of realized that I think my time in a combat corps was probably over. Um, so I did try and exhaust a couple of other options like core transfer, service transfer. And uh, I uh, unfortunately, my chain of command at the time weren't very supportive. And so, you know, um, I put in a service transfer and they told me that the paperwork got lost um, and they told me that it was denied and that the, um, you know, I was trying to go to the RAF um, uh, as SecPol. So I actually went to SecPol on the base I was at and asked them if I could do some OJT and I was told, yes, that was not an issue. But then my chain of command said that it had been rejected. So it just got very, um, I think the bureaucracy kind of, put up so much red tape, it became near impossible to even try and fight for retention. So it, I think, you know, you, you're dealing with an injury, which is leading to a medical discharge, that's very hard hitting. But then when you have all these other options, which I think were viable in terms of, you know, I medically could commit to those roles, you know, when they're taken away from you, um, it, it becomes even harder to digest. So you start feeling, well, I, anyway, I did um, somewhat of a, a failure. And then that there really messed around with my headspace quite a bit. At the same time, I unfortunately found out that my partner at the time was um, cheating um, whilst I was at, you know, doing some training. So, you know, all these things kind of culminated and kind of compounded on uh, myself at the same time. Um, and then I started experiencing pretty bad depression. Um, and then I actually eventually um, tried, you know, I attempted suicide. Yeah, that was um, in 2017. And... Um, that was near fatal. So I ended up in ICU yeah, for some time and um, was told I'd need a liver transplant from um, the medications. Uh, I was very lucky. I didn't end up needing a liver transplant, but it was very, very hard hitting. And then I just felt like my chain of command weren't very supportive. So I think that was, honestly, that was the hardest piece for me when I was separating was I felt like I hadn't given up on the army, but the army had given up on me. And um, that, that to me, you know, when, when you've got that, that history of, of service in your family, you know, yet again, you start to not just feel like a failure to self and, and the defence force, but also like a failure to, to the rest of your family. And, and I think that's, that's, that was what really, you know, really, really set off my mental health mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I can understand that. And it sounds like you had that hope of being able to find these other options to stay within defence, but it just wasn't being um supported through the channels of chain of command which yeah yeah Yeah, i mean you know they in their in respect to them they did offer a couple of um options such as you know transferring to an admin role in um in army you know but i i signed up to be you know i suppose in a combat role as a i didn't really want to entertain an admin role at that time uh, retrospectively, I, I kind of look back and I, I, I probably see that there were probably avenues I could have pursued, but I, I was pretty caught up. I, I was thinking about being um, transferring to artillery, into UAV, to SecPol over in RAF, you know, so, so a couple of those type of things. But I, I do give credit to my chain of command in that respect. They, they, they did try and retain me in an admin role, but to me, it wasn't meaningful. 
And I knew that if I didn't commit to a meaningful role, that I think in turn my mental health would have suffered more so. So I just, I, I but yet again as well, it's kind of conflicting because um, as much as I would love to stay in the green machine and wear the uniform, I, I would, which is meaningful, the role also needs to be meaningful. And I didn't feel my chain of command were receptive in that regard. And like, I think that's another really big point that you made there is that in terms of what we do, if we don't feel that it's meaningful or has purpose, it can really impact on mental health as well. So even if you could have transferred it, it could have impacted. Definitely. And, you know, the one thing that Chana Command did, because I was trying to transfer over to RAF and to SecPol. So they um, put me into an RP position uh, at the battalion I was at, which for anyone who knows what RPs do, um, you're, not, you're not thought of in any, any high regard. And, you know, I, I was a little bit gung-ho. I didn't really understand what the RP position was, um, you know, being relatively new into the unit. And I, so yeah, I, I, I took it. And, um, but unfortunately, yet again, that pushed, you know, kind of separated me or, you know, kept me, uh, isolated me from my friends because, Yet again, it's a position that not many people um, respect. So again, that drove me further away from my, I suppose my support group being my friendship uh, with my mates and kind of pushed me in a bit of a corner as well. So I was, yeah, it, it was meaningful at the beginning, but then I think it was prob- probably very premature in my career to put me in such a position. So yet again, uh, I think they had the right intent, but I just don't think they executed it correctly. Thank you so much for opening up about all of that too. Like it's... Um it can be hard to re rehash all of the past information, um, especially when it comes to our mental health and where we're at, at certain points. Oh, definitely. Um, I, and I, you know, I give myself credit that, you know, it was hard work to, um, kind of commit to treatment and get better, but in turn, I I look back and I, I wouldn't change a thing that I've been through because it's made me who I am today. And um, I can now sit comfortably talking about this type of, you know, these type of themes about suicide and mental health and, and know that I can actually understand what people go through. Uh, I might not understand what's caused their mental health, but I can understand maybe the feelings that they're, you know, they're, they're experiencing and the, the dark hole that they might be going down. But I also know through my own treatment and having the supports around me, like DVA, uh, my partner, Open Arms and, and friendship, you know, like Corbin was one of them as well, who really, um, who was there for me you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. And I, and I think that, unfortunately, that's not spoken of uh, as much as it should be. And I think a lot of people kind of, uh, when they have this label that you're incapacitated or you can't work or that you've got major depression or whatever it may be, people then start identifying as that label. And then it just kind of, it prevents them from getting better. And so, you know, I think that the defence really need to kind of, kind of set the ground there that people can get better when there's support that is in place and when people commit to treatment, you can come out of it, out of it more resilient, more robust and, um, you know, a, a better person. So, I, yeah, I think I, that's one thing I wish that Defence would take up is that, you know, um, you can rephrase or, or reshape the mindset around mental health and, and know that it actually can be a resilience building tool um, more so than anything else. Yeah, definitely. And through treatment and stuff like that, you learn the skills and the strategies that you didn't have beforehand. And you learn more stuff about yourself and why you have responded the way that you have as well. Like what's the causes and the triggers for the thought patterns, um, which you don't, and you don't, yeah, very much like so. most people, 
some people do navigate this themselves, but most people need that, um, a, like, objective person to help them see that. And, yeah, you can do no, um, yeah. like, you may have things that may trigger mental health down the line, but um, you can definitely overcome the challenges that you are facing in the moment with extra support from others. And I agree. And I think one thing that I um, reflect on now is I did have a level of emotional intelligence yeah. you know, prior, but going through the process, I think I developed a, um, a much greater level of emotional intelligence, you know, so you can, you can have that insight into yourself and, and recognize when things might not be, you know, going the way they should, and you can intervene so they don't yeah. get to boiling point. And I think that, you know, pays dividends in the long run because, you know, you can actively remain vigilant about when, when things might be going down a dark hole and you can kind of step back and reassess and, and um, determine another course of action. And, but the, the good thing as well, it doesn't just apply to yourself. Not for me anyway, I feel like I can apply that emotional intelligence outwards to now obviously clients, friends, um, you know, loved ones and, and, and really try and be there to support them as well. What about yourself, Corbin? What was your reasoning for leaving defence? Yeah, so uh, very similar, very similar to Christian in some parts, um, as he explains it. Is the uh, so I had so I my first injury occurred quite early into my training. Unfortunately, I was about um, three or four weeks in when I um, did some significant damage to my hip, which was unidentifiable at the time. With basic imagery, it wasn't until MRI where it really um, showed itself, um, where they found out exactly what it was. So that pulled me out of. Um, I was in surgery within twelve weeks of being in the army, um, yeah. and then got moved back to. Um, and then ultimately, oh, I was a bit of a story. Sorry, I'll probably just go through this. <laughs> so um, yeah, pulled a. First injury um, while I was in RMC and then uh, I was moved to the rehab between there for six months while I was recovering from surgery. And similar thing, I pushed – the college is very much a high-tempo environment. Um, it's churning out um, offices every six months. It needs to um, maintain that tempo. So I didn't want to stick around longer than I had to and I wanted to get back to not fall too far behind my peers at the time. So um, I went from – having major hip surgery to being regrouped back into class with limited restrictions um, under three months. Um, but the downside of that is that if, if I was overcompensating on the other side um, so that the my other hip went within six months of graduating the college. So, so, so I made it through the college, got through um, while um, physically not too bad, but um, the, mentally it took a bit of a hit and then damaged the other hip not really doing anything interesting uh, six months out of the college, only really just stepping into command and then had that one operated on. And due to the length of time being on restrictions, um, I had to go to the medical review board. Though I went in expecting um, to come out deployable and then got hit with the J5 one, which, which is medical separation. So that kind of came unexpectedly. I was expecting to go on a promotion course and then um, get my first posting, my second posting as an officer on promotion, um, which never occurred. Um, so I never really, for me, my biggest struggle with the medical transition was feeling like I never actually got to do my job. 
it's the yeah. uh, I did all this training. You know, I've done the two years of RMC because of the injury instead of eighteen months. I've then posted to a battalion, mm-hmm. stepped into command for the first time, really trying to cut my teeth um, and put my training into practice. And then another injury occurs, exactly the same injury as the other side of the body. And then get hit with a J five one, just when I was about to. Um, go on course and get get to the the promotion that I wanted um, and the and the posting that I wanted, which was actually just the platoon commander of um, training rehabilitation wing, which is just because I was trying to the reason I wanted to go there was to try and help the trainees get through the rehab platoon, which I similar to what I had to do at at RMC. So yeah, same kind of thing. It's the mental health then takes its toll because of. Uh, the army only really has a place. It's a, it's a fighting force, right? So we're we're not there to. Unfortunately, if you're injured, they're gonna innately they're gonna push you to the side and stick with the people who are deployable and capable, so that they can maintain that momentum. But the issue from that mentally is that you're now feeling like a burden rather than an asset to the service, and and it feels like you're almost swept under the rug as, as soon as you're injured because because they are so focused on being ready and being deployable that as soon as you're not deployable, it's like you're pushed to the side and it's just, okay, well, you're either ready when you're ready or you're not. And then we'll just get someone else to fill your job. So kind of um, that hit me harder than I thought it would. It's um, And then coupling that with being a new, uh, a new, uh, a new father of um, not only my daughter, but then my uh, son was born uh, the year I got out as well. So I was trying to juggle newly like new parenthood as well as dealing with this surprise separation where I had all of a sudden three months to sort my life out and figure out where I'm going to uplift my family, where we're going to go, what I'm going to do, how am I going to support them? And it's, um, yeah, it was challenging, but, um, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's falling on those, not falling, but leaning on those support networks in place. I had enough support from rehab to, um, during service to then, open tell me about open arms as an option um so i self-referred to psych there which is when i was in self-referring to psych was seen um as a thing not to do was very taboo there's this perception in service that if you go to a psychologist um that you're going to get kicked out where it's not the case it's 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 being proactive with yourself and making sure you're trying not to be reactive with your mental health um, so I discovered open arms and open arms helped me through that with a lot of counseling to try and navigate the injuries and the upcoming separation through that. But as prepared as I thought I was, when the day came where I did get separated and I had to suddenly move across the country with no job lined up, no support network lined up, no friends, like no friends over where I've moved to, even though I thought I was prepared and I was good to go, you know, um, it's, it hit me like a ton of bricks and, it wasn't really until you really find someone who's had a, that, that lived experience, um, which for me was Christian. Christian's about um, a year or two ahead of through the transition journey than me. So going through his ex- experiences and vocalising that with him then really just made me understand what was happening a bit more. So I wasn't catastrophizing yeah. as much as I was at the time, um, mm-hmm. just knowing that I'm not the first person to go through this and that, there is support in place. You just need to raise your hand and actually ask for the help. 
Definitely. And it kind of normalizes the experience in a way that other people have been through the same things that you guys are going through at the time. Yeah, 100%. I, I think it's um, I think it's very easy to feel, um, I, and I guess this goes back to the mateships that are you know and the, and the friendships that are formed during service. When you get on that medical discharge train, um, mm. you start to feel like you're riding it solo. So you start to feel like you're going on an individual yeah. kind of course away from the whole collective team. But you don't realize that on that train, on that discharge train, there's actually a lot more people. You know, like Corbin, he was you know probably on a couple of carriages behind me, but this you start to feel like you're isolated from everyone and then I was somewhat similar I ended up posting to the west and then from the west I discharged I was lucky because I was posting back to my 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 hometown where I was from in Perth but also you know the friendships that we form in defense really kind of to me they really define what friendship actually is and so I lost touch with a lot of my civilian friends because I, I didn't feel like the the bonds were as tight and I somewhat felt like I, I, not that I couldn't trust them, but I couldn't trust them to the same level as I could trust um, my, my friends in service. So you, you kind of grow apart, um, or I did anyway. So I, yet again, you was, was feeling more isolated. And it's not until you find others, like, you know, when I found Corbin, you know, we, we met through a Soldier On event that we kind of realized that we're, you know, we're not in this alone. There are so many other people out there going through the same um, or, or similar experiences that, you know, you just need to know who to ask uh, for support and um, and where obviously where to ask for the support um, because there's so many cool uh, initiatives that a lot of these ESOs roll out. But unfortunately, not a, not many veterans attend them. So, for instance, Open Arms uh, in WA did a, a wheelchair basketball, yeah, you know, near bi-monthly. Uh, the first one they did, I was literally the only veteran there mm-hmm. besides the the peers that were veterans as well. Um, so it's quite sad to think that all this money, time and effort goes into setting these things up for veterans, but no one attends. And and I think that actually compounds and everyone feeling isolated because I understand a lot of people, you know, want to attend, that that's their intent. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. the anxiety and the overwhelm starts to kick in and it just prov- it becomes a barrier to yeah. attending these um, types of uh, kind of events. And again it makes people who attend feel isolated because there's no other veterans there or there's limited veterans and it makes the people at home feel isolated as well because they they stayed at home and and um kind of you know uh, yet again feel alienated from the rest of the veteran community definitely and i um i know that sometimes i get the feedback that only the older veterans go there and that there's no young veterans which then makes the younger um, you know, discharged um, vets feel isolated too, that they're not meeting like-aged peers, which can be tricky. Yeah. That was, a, that was a big thing for me as well. It took me a long time, probably about oh, 12 to 18 months post-discharge to really actually get in touch with Soldier On because I knew that I joined the Facebook page to see that what events are coming up just to keep my finger on the pulse. And then, um, but actually taking that step to, to go, to go to one of the events took me a while. And for me, that came back to that feeling of not feeling like I actually did my job in the army. So I felt like I wasn't almost wasn't worthy to go to these events. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a big barrier for me to overcome. And I'm, I'm assuming it's a barrier that's a lot of veterans face, especially the ones that didn't get the chance to deploy on operations because ultimately you don't you're not going to meet a, uh, a former serviceman or women who woman who has joined who does not want to serve 
on operations. That's the whole reason we do this is to um, to do the job we train for, and to to not do that in your time feels like you're a failure, and it's and you've failed at doing the job you signed up for. So you almost feel like you're not worthy to attend those events. But in reality, it's it's taking the step to even sign them on the dotted line and to put that uniform on still makes you worthy to call yourself a veteran and to go to those events because yes, things might have gotten in the way of you going, but you were there, you were willing, you were training, you um, rocked up every day, you, you did the job, you were ready to go, but unfortunately something got in the way and that's not your fault that that happened. So it's once people get past that, that kind of barrier, it can open up a lot of opportunities for you that there are an offer. It's just, it can be a big one. And obviously there is other barriers such as um, mental health and stuff that will stop people from going to these events, but the support is there. You just need to put your hand up and actually go to it. And once people do that, they usually get pretty positive results. Yeah. And so I was going to add on to that. Um, You know, the the way I've kind of conceptualized it is I felt like it was, you know, um, it's like, it's like an AFL player only training and never actually getting game time. And I feel like, you know, if that AFL player is then um, released from the team due to an injury, they, they they struggle to do they identify as an AFL player? Um, they struggle to identify who, who they actually were and who they actually are. Um, and and I, I think that's kind of how you know I also felt, and um, and I think that's what Corbin was getting at there as well. And I think one of the other big things, people become very jaded through the medical discharge process um, because they feel like defence has given up on them, and it's, it's very easy to feel like that. And, but they also, the you know, chain of command, sometimes become reactive through the process and start also dishing out, you know, um, not punishment, but they, they don't become as forgiving as they once were. Um, so people become, they, 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 like this distrust is bred. And then I think that then is taken with them out of service. So when ESOs roll out these initiatives, that they're also reluctant to attend these because they feel like that distrust kind of extends into the ESO community. And I think for a lot of younger veterans, yeah, I think 100% right. I think they do, you know, typically a lot of these ESOs are somewhat run by your older cohort of veterans and some have great contemporary initiatives whilst others haven't really come to the table yet and that they're emerging, but they're not quite there in terms of contemporary initiatives. And I think that then pushes veterans away as well. You know, the younger cohort anyway, they, they feel that reluctance because they feel some of these events might just be tailored for your older cohort of veterans or that, you know, that identity piece, like I, I don't want to go to these when it's being run by a Vietnam veteran who served in Vietnam and I didn't even deploy. So I think a lot of people um, start to you know, become overwhelmed by all these emotions and then it just becomes um, too much and they just don't attend. Yeah, definitely. I, I, um, I 100% agree with everything that you have both just said there in terms of the struggles and stuff like that. But I think it's also really common for um, people to get injured in those very early stages of training and having to discharge really early as well from what I've seen. as I'm sure you guys have seen that too. Yeah, and yeah. Defence has got a real negative culture around injury. Um, well, it did when I was in anyway and probably yourself, Christian, as well. It's There's a very big culture around oh, if you're injured, you're faking it. Mm-hmm. So it's like that's the stigma that defence has and that um, – so no one wants to get injured and when they do, you'll try hide it and if you try hide it and then you push through because you don't want to be seen as someone who's malingering or faking an injury, so you push through, you push harder than you should, you 
increase your rehabilitation, you decrease your rehabilitation time on purpose to make sure you can get back to being fighting fit when in reality you need to take that time. But the expectation, because like defense as a whole is a very competitive environment and needs to be. It's a, Mm -hmm. it's a fighting force. It's there to serve a purpose. It needs to be competitive. It needs to be ready. So you can understand where it comes from, but the the problem with that is that yeah, people are pushing through way too early and then they're making injuries worse or they're just overcompensating and then making new injuries through recovery all because they're trying to fight against the stigma and just ends up having negative results for everyone. Mm-hmm, definitely. And I think it's not just the physical injuries that you can see that happening. It can also be the psychological part of it as well, where it just keeps getting pushed down to the point where it then escalates. Yeah, it becomes almost like a, just a ticking time bomb just um, yeah. over time. Definitely. So for you both, what are some things that you wish you'd known through that discharge or through your transitioning process? Like if you were to recommend something to someone who's going through this process, what would that be? Yeah, I think one of the big things is be kind to yourself. Um, you know, I, I went into defence similar to Corbin, you know, um, with kind of these expectations of myself and all these things I wanted to achieve. And because we didn't get to kind of fulfil some of those, you, you had still had this kind of unrelenting motivation to or dedication um, within you. So when, you, when you're transitioning out, just as rehab, you know, push it too hard, mm-hmm. too fast, um, wasn't kind to yourself. It also that extended for myself anyway out into um, the transition period where, you know, it was get back to work. What am I going to do? I've got to redefine myself and find my ident- and, you know, identity now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't have a day left in me. I've got to, I've got to do it today. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of I had this unrelenting expectations of myself. But if I could go back, you know, th- things are going to work out. Things are going to get better. It just takes time. These things do not happen overnight. You know, it, it took mm-hmm. two years of pr- pretty intense psychotherapy to get me onto some, you know, stable ground again. If I had known that back then, mm-hmm. you know, I think the process would have been a lot easier to digest, but I, I didn't. And the other thing as well, yeah. you know, um, it's very easy to get caught up in that little that, that, that vicious cycle of thinking you're the only one going through this. Um, now, I didn't actively think that uh, or consciously think mm-hmm. that, but subconsciously I, I, I really didn't. Uh, had the insight to think that there's others, pe- other people who are probably in a very similar position, similar age, going through not the exact same, but um, those similar feelings. It, it would have been really nice to to kind of have that insight, but you're so caught up in all these emotions mm-hmm. and this overwhelming kind of expectations of yourself that you you kind of forget about reality a little bit. And um, you you just start to feel more isolated. So I think if I could go back, the biggest thing I'd, I'd yeah. you know is be very kind to yourself because it's a process. But like any process, you know, it, it, it things will improve over time. Yeah, definitely. What about yourself, Corbin? Yeah. So the two there's two main things that I wish I knew earlier that didn't take me two years to figure out. And um, the main the two things are one, regardless of your service you are what you did had value mm-hmm. and that you shouldn't be devaluing your service or yourself so that's the like being kind to yourself again like what christian said but it's it's mainly about mainly around the value of what you did the fact again you've signed the dotted line you've made that sacrifice you've um spent the time away from your family and your friends and you've put the uniform on you've done more than 
95% of the country. Like it's just by doing that alone. So don't devalue what you've done. Um, regardless of how it ended, you still um, made that commitment. And the biggest thing outside, which was a turning point for me was, and it's a bit, it's difficult to do in the early days, is, is to pull your head out of that um, victim mentality. It's very easy to, um, when things go wrong, to say I'm the victim and, and it's poor me, poor me and, and everyone else's fault. But the turning point for me was making that switch to, no, you know, I need to have some accountability for um, how I'm feeling as well. It's not all defence. It's not all the army. It's not all the injury. I'm in control of, my, of what's, what's happening now. I'm in control of my life. I need to now sort this out. I've got a family to look after and provide for. And um, so it's taking away from that victim mentality and to really just close the chapter of your life story on the, on the army and then move forward with the next chapter. So it's, instead of seeing it like your whole life, just see it as a chapter and move forward because that's for me that was a big turning point. Um, but it took a long time to get there. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think what you're talking about there is those, like in my therapy sessions, I always talk about control um, and what's in our control and what's outside of our control and taking that step back and going, okay, is this something I can actually do anything about? And if not, what can I do something about in that moment? I think that's kind of what you're saying. Is that my right with that or no? Yeah, no, hundred percent. So it's yeah, like you lose, you get, you get kicked out, you um, or you leave, and then you you feel as if defense turns your back, turns its back on you. So it's it might not be the case, but that's just the feeling. Like the day you your discharge happens, it, it suddenly there's no contact. You're not allowed on base anymore. You're not allowed to like your friends continue with their careers because they have to, right? Like they got a job to do. They're busy. Everyone's busy. Yeah. You've moved either across the country, um, a different city, or away from people. You might be back with family or friends. You might not be. Mm-hmm. But it's for me. I I went down a pretty deep hole of like self pity, and I and I kept having those ebbs and flows and um, and relapses back into the dark the dark holes. But then it's not until I started to see it, view it more as a um, a chapter that it kind of pulled my head out of the sand and said, you know, it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of my life. I got uh, a part two to this story and I can st- I'm still going to be the best father I can be for my kids and the best example I can set for them. And if that is going to be me wallowing around, moping the rest of my life, then what kind of example am I setting to them? Yeah, yeah. So it really became, yeah, what can I control? I can control my actions. I can control the way I think about things. I can control um, how I'm raising my kids. I can't control that. I had the injuries. I can't control that. I got discharged from the army. So let's just focus now on what I can do and use the support and networks that are there to do the best job I can. Yeah, 100%. I I love um, the way that you framed that and I think that will be really helpful for people to hear it put that way. Um, yeah. Thank you all for listening to part one. Uh, Part two will come out next week. Now, I just wanted to quickly pop on and let you all know that I have started up a email subscription uh, section, I guess. I've put the link in the show notes. Um, It's just so that I can share with you all resources that I am developing 
there is a transition checklist that will be uh, coming out soon. And those that have subscribed to that mail mailing list will get a copy of it. So if you are interested in that or interested in any other potential free resources that I develop or information about any courses that may be coming up that I am running, I would really uh, think it would be beneficial for you all to just pop over, sign up to the mailing list. It won't be spamming. I, uh, I don't want to do that to you all, but I will share, you know, information additional to the podcasts and stuff like that over there. So go ahead, click the link, um, and I will chat to you all soon. And I hope you all tune in for part two next week. I would like to thank you all for listening and I hope you have all enjoyed the episode. If you are a defense member who is or has transitioned or an organization who supports the transition of defense members or a spouse of the transitioning member, I would love to hear from you. You can do this by jumping on the Exit Strategies Instagram page, which is linked in the show notes, or you can search the Exit Strategy underscore underscore. Until next time, I hope you all have a wonderful day.